0: Turning in the Bible to the book of Philippians, we will begin uh, this morning in verse 3 of chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. Please hear now the Word of God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for a time to consider your word, that you may teach us and speak to us through your spirit. And I pray that you would come and do a great and mighty work in our hearts, that you would make this church more like... Jesus, that you would conform us to his image and help us to be right-minded and right-hearted, that we would be not, not like the world's, but as Christ has shown us, and that you would teach us now through your spirit and your word. open hope in our hearts to receive your message this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I will let you know uh, that, gentlemen especially, that uh, this week uh, comes Valentine's Day, so you should be aware of that. This Friday I don't want you to be unprepared and so you might want to get your sweetheart something a little token of your love and appreciation Uh, a man named George Bolt once did that for his sweetheart Louise in 1899 Uh, George Bolt happened to be the proprietor of the Waldorf Astoria hotel in New York City and uh, his means perhaps were a little bit beyond yours he decided for his wife to build her a 60,000 square foot castle on Hart Island on Valentine's Day in 1899. It would make it one of the largest private estates in America, six stories tall, 127 rooms, 30 bathrooms, complete with tunnels, a powerhouse, Italian gardens, a castle tower, which would serve as the children's playhouse and even a drawbridge. There was artwork throughout the castle, tapestries, sculptures made from the finest material in which he had hired the finest craftsmen to come in from overseas and to work at this this gift for his beloved. No expense was, uh, was spared. No detail was neglected. And the work began in 1899. In 1904, when the castle was 95% complete, a telegram arrived to stop work immediately you see louise had died george bolt would never step foot on that island again and the work on that castle uh, was shut down frozen in time and it is the same today you can even tour this mansion 95 percent complete almost finished but not quite a good work begun but not completed well, will like George Bolt, but not exactly, as you know, God has, too, begun a good work. He has started something in your life. In fact, the apostle tells us as much in verse 6, saying, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. So he has begun something in you, but unlike this man and unlike you and I, you know what God will do with that which he begins? Well, he will complete it, as the apostle says. Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And as, uh, uh, Paul begins to contemplate this glorious truth of what God is going to do. It fills him with joy and delight as we see in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And it's somewhat extraordinary that the apostle here can write that he is filled with joy in light of his current circumstances. For you see, we know that he is writing this letter not from the study in his country estate. The fire is not crackling, the coffee is not hot, he is not reclining in his leather chair, but rather he is imprisoned. In fact, he says as much in verse 7 when he speaks of his imprisonment or literally his chains. He is on trial for his life in Rome. In fact, if you read the book of Acts and you see much of the account of Paul's life, uh, the book of Acts tells us that he was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years, waiting a trial for the the charges that were brought against him. Throughout those entire two years, the Apostle Paul was chained to a guard by 18 inches from wrist to wrist, day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, robbing him of not only freedom, but privacy, and there he was locked together with this guard fearing that he would never get a trial he appealed to Rome and after a harrowing voyage across the seas including a shipwreck and being bit by a viper he finally made it to Rome and is perhaps in Rome for as much as two years when he writes this letter to the Philippian church now can you imagine what that must have been like for Paul this this man of action and vision This man who has maybe for four years not stepped foot out of a cell except for a voyage, who has not preached in a synagogue or a marketplace, not even once. What what torture and trouble that must have brought upon him. Well, the Philippians, this church that he started, hears of his imprisonment, and they are so concerned that they send their pastor to him for the hundreds, if not thousands miles of Epaphroditus to come and to encourage Paul. And Epaphroditus gets there, and in that voyage, somehow he got ill, and he got almost ill to death, and he almost died. And while Epaphroditus was gone, some Christian missionaries show up in Philippi, and they begin to say, well, what you heard from Paul is all wrong. You're believing the wrong things. You need to believe what we believe and what we're teaching. Teaching you. And so they're concerned for their pastor who they know is ill. And now they have all these questions in their mind as to what is true. And in the midst of this, we know that two prominent women in the church are in some dispute that they're threatening to rip the church in half. And then on top of all of that, the Bible says they were destitute in their poverty. And as if that were not enough, they were actually being persecuted at that time, whether jailed or shunned or, or beaten, all for Jesus. If anyone had a right to vent over the circumstances in his life. It was Paul. And if there ever was a sympathetic audience to a self-pity party, it would be the Philippians. And yet the Apostle writes, I thank my God and all my remembrance for you all, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. With joy. He's there imprisoned thankful joyful i appreciate verse 3 he says i thank my god in all my remembrance of you he's grateful for them every time he thinks about them in prayer he thanks god for them paul seemed to rarely thank god for things interestingly enough things like freedom for instance but often is thanking god for people who who bring him his joy I love how he ends the book of Romans and he lists no less than 33 different names. And a lot of us we kind of just skip over that because there's not a lot of theology and truth there. But it's very interesting to me as a pastor and hearing this, this uh church planner, this pastor's heart, that he was very concerned with these people. And just imagine the diligence it must have taken for Paul, who met these thirty-three people over the years in his journey, the energy that it must have involved to keep up with them, always inquiring how is so and so and what is so and so doing, and making notes about their whereabouts and their circumstances in life. He's See this great apostle, this great man of truth, this theologian loved people and and he clearly loves them and he says i thank my god in, in all my remembrance of you he's remembering them how how god opened lydia's heart when he went there and preached the gospel and she immediately opened her home to the apostle and his team and they're started there as perhaps the first church building in europe in lydia's home and he thought about how god had liberated that demonic uh, de- demonized girl from her bondage and and then per- a little bit later that paul and silas were liberated from their bondage in order that they could witness to the gospel to the jail and his family and he, he's remembering all these things about them and, and he's thankful for them as he does, which kind of tells us who's Paul not remembering. Who's he not thinking about himself? It's not about Paul, even in the midst of these hard and difficult circumstances, He's not focused on himself. He's not thinking poor me. Of course that reminds us does it not of Jesus as he died upon the cross and was paying for our sin. And there, bearing the wrath of God, who is Jesus thinking about but his mother as he makes sure that, that John will care for her or, or even the thief on the cross next to him as he says to him, you will be with me in paradise today or even even the very ones who at that moment are killing him. He prays that God would forgive their sins. He's not thinking of himself. He is thinking of of others. And Paul seems to be a dim reflection of Christ thinking of these Philippians and thanking God for them. In fact, you notice, he doesn't just thanking God for some of them. I I don't know if you see the kind of prominence this word all, A-L-L, plays in in these verses. He says there again in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you all. Right? All. In all times, in all prayers of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He, he's thinking for everyone. In fact, even up in verse 1, he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 7, you notice that he says, Write it for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. And again in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you, you all. You see, God, he's not just thinking about a favored few. God has put a love in Paul. Paul's heart for all of them, and he he thinks about all of them, and, and this may not stand out to us in our day, but this Christian brotherhood that which God had brought about in Paul's day will be extraordinary. That this middle-aged academic bigot is is now been transformed by God, where he is thinking about these Gentiles and these slaves and these jailers, and he is finding great delight in them, and all the barriers that Rome said were important, whether it be class or education or wealth or color of skin. It didn't matter at all to this apostle. He thanks God for all of them as God has brought them together in Christ. He is incredibly thankful. Don't you want to have people like that in your life? (laughs) Thankful people in your life. Is that not a great joy to you? People who recall and savor what is good about you and are quick to look past what may not be so good. Maybe even sin. Well, they're a delight to be around. Uh, ungrateful people, I think, would probably be the opposite. Those people will focus on faults and what's wrong with the situation or wrong with you and focus on themselves. Uh, the poet Thomas Hardy once said, some people can find the manure pile in any meadow. Right? Well, Paul has manure piles all around him. I mean, he's chained to one, if you will. Um, he doesn't see it, though, does he? He sees the meadow. He rejoices, thankful for them. In fact, you you see that joy there in verse 4 when he says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my my prayer with joy. Prisoners are not supposed to have joy. Brokenness, yes. Repentance, yes. Maybe bitterness or anger. But not joy. And yet this is what the apostle says. I'm filled with joy. In fact, joy is not only mentioned here in verse 4, but it's mentioned 14 more times in this epistle, more than any other letter in the New Testament. In fact, Paul will go on and and declare that that though other Christians are increasing his pain, he will rejoice. And then say, death may be near, but I will rejoice nevertheless. And then he will ask them to join him in his joy and make progress in joy and complete his joy and receive their brother with joy. And again and again he will say to them that they ought to place their joy in the Lord. In fact, Paul will eventually say as he closes the letter, you Philippians are my joy and my crown." This has rightly been called for centuries, the epistle of joy. I appreciate what one commentator says, writing, Against the dark fabric of Paul's confinement and possible execution and the Philippians' similar sufferings, the thread of joy gleams like gold. It's everywhere throughout this book. This man is filled with joy, and I think we would rightly ask, Well, how can he be joyful in light of his present confinement? and his difficulty, and not knowing what the future will bring for him. How? How, how, did, how does someone find joy in that? Well, he tells us. In fact, he gives us, I think, three reasons for joy. He tells us he finds joy in their participation in the gospel, and joy in their completion for Christ, and joy in his affection for them. I, I don't know how life is treating you these days, and it, it may be hard and, and difficult. You may come here this morning with with financial troubles or pain in the family or fear with your health or loss through loneliness. And and Christianity doesn't deny those realities. But even in the face of them, Christianity comes and, and faces these troubles and trials and in the midst of it says, Rejoice! Rejoice! Give yourself to joy! The Bible declares, and we see this taking place in this apostle's life, and we think, how can this absolutely be possible for me to have joy where I find myself today? Well, we can look what the Bible says for joy, not in the favorable circumstances of life, but in belonging to Christ, we find our joy. And so I, cons- I, I would invite you this morning, not just to uh, examine Paul's joy, but to consider your joy this morning. Or perhaps lack of joy this morning. That God might do good work in your heart. Producing the joy that he intends to be in there. So first consider with me that we can find joy in the participation. In our participation in the gospel. This is what Paul writes as he ends verse 4 saying. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. Making my prayer with joy. Why Paul? Verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Some of your translations may say fellowship in the gospel. That's perhaps a more accurate translation, that they're fellowshipping in the gospel. And I wonder if my translation puts partnership there instead of fellowship, because Christianity's kind of perverted this term fellowship. Right? If you, you invite a non-Christian over to your house for dinner, we call that friendship. Right? But if he happens to be Christian over your house for dinner, that is now transformed into fellowship. right? We're here in a service, but if you visit after in the foyer, you will be fellowshipping. You go over to a Christian's house and you watch a football game. We call that fellowship. Well, I'm not sure that's what the Bible means by fellowship. In fact, the fellowship that the Bible speaks about is that when we share something in common, that we actually, we, we, we actually sacrifice in common. It often had to do with business. Like if you, you and I would go into business together, we would actually be fellowshipping then. So let's just say we, we decided to buy an espresso machine right? and we're going to open a coffee shop together and you and I are going to do that. And we would, once we do that, once you put some money in and I put some money in, we are now fellowshipping together in this enterprise. Okay, it, it, when we say we're fellowship, it doesn't mean we're gonna sit down and drink coffee together, though I hope we would, right? But it, but it means that we are, have this common sacrifice, this common goal, this common vision to, to run this business and to make a profit. Well, Christianity in which we, is, is a religion in which we fellowship in the gospel. So Paul's not thinking of the great meals that he's had with them, or the fine time that he's enjoyed with them, but he's thinking of their shared commitment in the gospel, in the fame of Jesus Christ, and therefore he's rejoicing that his brothers and sisters from the moment of their conversion have entered into this fellowship with him. Is that not what he says here in verse five? From the first day until now, you have been participating, fellowshipping with me in the gospel. Perhaps he thinks of when God saved Lydia and she immediately invited them into her home or if you in fact look over to chapter four and note verse 16, Paul says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul's up in Philippi and he goes down to Thessalonica and who supporting him. But it is the Philippians who have entered fellowship into fellowship with him for the gospel. When he gets down to Corinth, they're still supporting him. In fact, you look in chapter 4, verse 14, what he says of them. He says, It was kind of you to literally fellowship in my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves. Know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into fellowship with me in giving and receiving except you only. You see, they're supporting Paul from the very beginning, and it fills him with great joy. And by the way, the support is not simply financial. The Bible tells us here in the book of Philippians that they're praying for him, and that they're standing with him, even when he's being discredited, and that they too are proclaiming the gospel in Philippi while Paul is in Rome. They are they are supporting one another's work, in the gospel. It's a robust band of brothers and sisters dedicated to spread the fame of Jesus. Can you imagine why this would fill him with joy? This man who just lives for this. He lives for the fame of Christ. And now others are sacrificing and joining with Him and He is filled with great joy because of it. I wonder if therefore you too would find joy in laboring with others to build the kingdom. finding partners to do gospel work. I think one reason that joy is so elusive and fleeting is that we look for it in places where the Bible tells us it will not be found. I wonder if you would find joy, Christian, in serving alongside others and working with children in this church or serving with others as you help the poor or comfort women in crisis pregnancy, or you would find joy getting together with a band and, and shoveling snow for some of our elderly members, and then maybe going to their neighbor's house and shoveling their snow or mowing their lawn. I wonder if you would find joy in maybe getting together with some people and say, we well, let's just pray for the world and go through Operation World uh, country by country together and pray for God's work, or you would find joy in that you would... At- find someone and say, can can we start meeting and you start praying together and maybe you can disciple them or they can disciple you and you would find joy in that relationship or find joy in, in joining one of our community groups as you be the church to one another and actually get to know what's going on in each other's life that you could give a visible, incredible display of what the gospel does to us or you'd find joy going on a mission trip or joining the team to go to Eagle Butte this summer or supporting someone who wants to go or you find joy in sharing what God is doing in your life with others or bearing each other's burdens. This is why we have the church in order that we might partner in the gospel in order that we might link arms and make vows and say we are going to work and sacrifice and labor for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in that work that we shall find delight and joy, the Bible tells us. It's what He calls us to do. In fact, this is something that our church is currently considering. Um, As we move forward, we see that we need to to be more outward focused, more kingdom focused into our community, into the nations. Like, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you give to this church, uh, over 20% of what you give leaves this community of faith. It goes out of, of our community to bless other gospel work. We, we gave somewhere around $140,000 last year to impact the kingdom. But not even that, we had three offerings, special offerings last year. We had one for North America church planning, and we had one for to support the persecuted church in Islamic nations. And then we had one to spread the gospel to unreached peoples. And you gave... Over $60,000 for that offer. We sent $200,000 last year out into the world in order to support gospel work and to strengthen our partners. And, and that's not just what God is doing. As you, many of you know, last year we began to become convicted that we had too much money. We, we looked at our bank account as a church. And we, and we weren't even meeting budget, by the way. And we said, we, we, we have way too much money. And the elders begin to discuss and to consider stewardship issues. And we were afraid Christ is going to show up one day and say, what, what are you doing with, my, with the resources I gave you? And I didn't want to tell them, well, we're getting a tenth of a percent interest in the CD. I don't want to say we buried it in the ground. And so we brought this concern, the elders to the church, and the church unanimously and joyously voted that we will cap how much money we save as a church. That we will never have more in the bank than two months of budgeted expenses. And everything that gets over that, we will set aside to spread the gospel. To partner with the kingdom work. right? And by the way, interestingly enough, as soon as the church decided that, our giving shot. And now we're making budget. As we decided to, I think, have approached our stewardship issue as a church more faithfully. And now we have this glorious... Problem, if I can put it that way, of $125,000 that we have to find something to do with. And so we have asked the church over these past couple weeks, help us understand as elders how we can support this gospel work. And we have received today 52 different suggestions. So we're excited about the interest that the church has in this. And, and we're going to, next Sunday night at 6 p.m., talk to the church about how it is that we can both help our current partners and at the same time use these resources to launch this church, not just to support financially, but actually get involved in impacting Loudoun County and the world for Christ. And I believe with when we do this, because we are going to do this, you will see, friends... That joy begin to emerge in your heart as you labor for the gospel and the kingdom. This is what the apostle experienced. I'm so excited to be a member of Hamilton Baptist Church and what God is doing in us. Well, it's not the only place that Paul finds joy. He sees their, their partnership in the gospel as evidence of what God is doing in them. And he says we, he finds joy in the fact that they are going to be completed for Christ. We can find joy in this wonderful truth of our completion for Christ. note, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The apostle says God has started a work in you. That work is salvation. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. We saw this uh, in, in fact, you notice in verse 29 of, of chapter 1, Paul, I think, labors at this point. He says, for it is granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you to believe, he says, in the name of Christ. We saw this in Lydia's life as God opened her heart that she might put her faith in him. That salvation is a work in which God starts. And if God starts the work of salvation, we can be confident in it. Right? Is that not how he begins verse 6? And I am sure of this, he says. And I am sure of this. That if he started your salvation, he will finish your salvation. He will complete your salvation because God finishes what he starts. How unlike us God is. Right? Any of you women living in homes of with a half a dozen half completed projects? Right? Any of you theologians have a stack of half finished books? Right? Any of you start the diet and don't finish it? Right? This time you're serious, right? You're gonna complete it. Right? In fact, how are those New Year's resolutions coming? Now what? uh, Right? 40 days in? Right? Right? We start all the time and rarely finish. But God is not like you. God will finish that which He starts. Therefore, Do not rest your assurance of your salvation simply on your faithfulness, but rest it on God. I mean if it is you who started the work Then then perhaps you can rest it on your faithfulness Because you will be the one completing it But if He began the work We can be confident that, that our salvation Depends not on our faithfulness But on His The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 He will sustain you to the end Guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord Who will sustain you? He will 1 Thessalonians says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I don't know if you ever get to a point where you, you begin to feel that God has stopped working in your life. There's just not much evidence of God's work in you. Can I tell you this morning that he will never stop. He will never stop. He will never let anything stand in His way of finishing His work in you. I am sure of this. I am sure of this. I am sure of this, the Apostle declares... That God will complete it. He does not say, I hope He will. He does not say, He probably will. He doesn't say, well, let's just cross our fingers and pray that He will. He is confident. He is persuaded. He is absolutely convinced. Because Scripture labors to give us this assurance. For instance, Psalm 89 says, we are under a divine faithfulness that will never be removed. John chapter 3 says we have an eternal life that will never end and we will never perish. John 4 says we drink from a spring of water that will forever bubble up. John 6 says we, uh, of all those who have been given to him, he will lose none. Of John chapter 10, it says we are in the hand of the good shepherd from which we can never be snatched. In Romans 8 and verse 1, it says there is therefore now. What is it? <laughs> what is it? Oh, <laughs> my no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans eight verse thirty says that we are bound by a chain that cannot be broken. Romans eight verse thirty nine says we are loved with a love from which can, we can never be separated. Romans eleven twenty nine says we are recipients of a calling which can never be revoked. Second Timothy tells us we are built upon a foundation that can never be destroyed. First Peter chapter one says our faith is protected by the power of God which can never be defeated. I tell you this not simply because I wish it to be so. I tell you. Because the Bible tells us over and over and over again, He who started a work in you will complete it. And you may be sure of this. You may be sure of this. You may be sure of this. God will do it. This is what fills the apostle with joy. He will complete you. And you may think, well, what does that look like? What is this completion? What does that mean even that that He will complete me? It means that you one day, Christian, will become just like Jesus. Jesus. Just like Jesus. You see, the hope of your salvation is not simply that you get to live forever in your present state. It is that He will transform you into perfection. And in that perfected state, you shall live forever. And I don't know what all that means, but I can tell you that our mind will work with clarity and insight. And our soul will rejoice in majesty and beauty. And our heart will delight in God's glory and His people. And our body will be free from pain and limitation. We will be perfectly righteous like Jesus. There will be no more guilt or bitterness in your heart, no more greed or covetous in your soul, no more rage or selfless thought in your mind, never an unkind word or a boastful comment in your mouth. You will never be distracted in worship or bored by truth. You will never again be tempted by evil. You will never, forever and ever sin again. That's your destiny. That's where you are headed. This is your salvation. He says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, you have been predestined. That is, your destiny has been predetermined. That's what predestined means. To be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn of many brothers and you may be sure of it. It will happen on the day of Christ. So when Christ returns, He will have a people that are fitting for Him. Of people that truly appreciate Him. A people that will follow Him and worship Him in perfection. A people made for Him at His return. And I'm telling you, joy is available to you today because of this truth. I don't know if you face uncertainty in your life, but it should not steal your joy because you may be certain that God will finish this work. I don't know if you're in the midst of trouble and trial in your life, but it ought not to steal your joy, because you may be certain that it will soon pass, and you will live in trouble-free existence forever. You may find difficulty in your labor, but it will not steal your joy if you understand you have an eternal Sabbath waiting for me. This is the joy of anticipation that the Apostle has as he languishes in prison. I, I have no doubt that some of you are filled today with trouble and anxiety but this thing will never change and it is the best thing that the work of Jesus in you what God started in your life he will finish he will finish that and yet we don't feel very finished right because we're not we still struggle with sin and it's easy to become discouraged it's easy to be filled with despair and some unrelenting sin in your life. And I, too, understand that weight. I know what it is like, as do you, I trust, to commit some sin and be broken over it and cry out in repentance and, and ask God for forgiveness that He is freely gives and just be filled with sorrow over your sin as you speak to your Father about it and then not too long after, where do you find yourself? But in that same sin that just so recently broke your heart, And I think at times, in the quiet of our heart, when we struggle in this way, there is a whisper in our soul asking, are you a fraud? Am I a fraud? Because I keep struggling with the same issues over and over again, and maybe I just don't really mean it. And I'm telling you, those sins should not be minimized. They are rebellion against your good and gracious Father. But neither should they overshadow the truth of God's word, which he so clearly and frequently proclaims. That neither you, nor I, nor the devil himself can stop God's plan to complete you. He will complete you. He will work through you. So do not let your confidence in God's uh, declaration to complete you be found in your faithfulness and your goodness. Though you hate that sin, we can take it to the cross. And what is the cross but a declaration that my sin will not defeat the plan of God? The cross is a declaration that I have mercy, and so we may declare to our doubting heart, I will not despair. God is not done with me yet. Be gone, doubting fear. Come, indomitable joy. I am sure of this. I am sure of this. I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in me will complete it the day that Jesus comes for me. And there is joy found there if you give yourself to it. What can steal that joy? God is faithful and He will hold you. The question I think that we must ask, however, is has He begun a good work in me? Maybe there are some here who are not Christians. God has not begun that good work. And so there is no promise that you will be completed. The glorious truth and the glorious promise, the invitation I give to you that he can begin that work in you today. If you would bow your knee to King Jesus and place your faith in him, that you would realize that he has died on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay for your sin and rose three days later from the grave. And he says, if you simply come to me in repentant faith, I will save you. I will begin work and one day I will complete that work in you. And Paul finds great joy in this, but he finds joy in one last thing. Much more personal for the apostle. He finds joy in his affection for other believers. I think we can find joy there as well as we see in verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. He says, I I feel a certain way towards you. And we're we're not quite sure immediately what he feels. Is he talking about the thankfulness of verse 3 or the joy of verse 4 or the confidence in verse 6? Maybe he's talking about all those things, but certainly he's talking about this love that he has for them. In fact, he says, I I hold you in my heart. There's deep feelings, there's intensity of love that this apostle has for them. He even says down there in verse 8, interestingly enough, "I, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's a longing in this man for these people, a yearning for them. In fact, that same word is mentioned there in chapter 2 in verse 26. It's mention of Epaphroditus, the pastor at Philippi, who they've sent to Paul. Look what it says. For he has been longing or yearning for you all and has become distressed because you heard that he was ill. So Epaphroditus goes to Paul and he gets sick and he gets ill and the Philippians hear of it and they are concerned that he's sick and they're sad that he's sick. And then Epaphroditus gets sad that they're sad that he's sick and therefore yearns for them. And then Paul is sad that he's sad that they're sad because he's sick and he wants to send him home. Right? Because everybody's doing all sorts of yearning going on. It's kind of uncomfortable for me. But you know everybody's really it seems a little flowery, doesn't it? It's kind of get a hold of yourself, Paul. In fact, chapter 2, verse 19 he's talking about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be Cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will generally concern for your welfare and Timothy loves you and I love you and you love me and there's just it's just everybody loves each other it's wonderful and beautiful and a little bit strange but it's still pretty cool right and and he has great joy in this love in fact there in verse 8 when he says I, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus some of you may have the King James version this morning and it literally says how greatly I long for you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And that word affection is an interesting word. It actually means the soft areas, the soft eternal organs in our body. And so the strongest way in the Greek language at this time to express your compassionate love, right? If you really wanted to say someone that I love you, you would say, I love you with all my bowels. Right? So I, I think you should try that on your Valentine's card um, this Friday, right? So and then you tell me how it goes. So Paul so Hallmark or something. So Paul's saying, well, I mean, we still kind of use that phrase, right? When we feel something deeply, right? We're, we feel it in our what? In our gut, right? So it's the same same thing that's going on. He's saying, I feel this this love for you in my gut. There's a curl in my stomach. My heart's beating faster. And, and, and he's, he doesn't seem to care that he's just going over the top. In fact, even in verse 8, he says, God is my witness. Right? It's very rare for Paul to call an oath upon himself. But he calls for God to attest to the truthfulness of his love for them. He wants to make them sure of his affection. He says, God will be my witness how I love for you. I love you. I yearn for you. I think this is what the church is supposed to be like. <laughs> I think there's supposed to be joy found in this. I wonder, have you experienced this affection within the body of Christ? And some of you uh, read this and, and you, don't, you don't know what Paul's talking about. And I, I've spoken with some of you recently. You say, I don't, I don't have any relationships like this in the church. I don't feel like anybody yearns to be with me. I don't know anybody that well. And there is no joy there. Because you don't have the love that God calls for us to have. And part of that is our fault. And so I, I talk to you here in this church. You who, who think in your, in your heart, oh, I, wish I, I wish I felt like someone in Hamilton Baptist Church loved me. Like knew me, was interested in me. And, and if that's you, I, I want to apologize to you. That's not what the church is supposed to be like. But I also ask you to give us, the rest of us, the benefit of the doubt. We want to love you. And at times we just don't know how. And so will you reach out? Will you, will you tap someone on the shoulder? Invite them out for a cup of coffee or breakfast or lunch and try to be active in developing those relationships. And for those of us like myself who have so many deep and wonderful abiding relationships, these robust relationships, I I wonder if you would ask yourself, do I only love people in this church who are like me, who share my interests, who are in my same stage in life, Because that certainly seems like how the world loves. But I think there probably should be something different in us. I think we ought to reverse that trend. Jesus says, by this all men will know you are my, my disciples. How you love one another. And so in other words, the church is to display the kind of love that can only be understood by being changed by Jesus. By being changed by the gospel. This love I don't think can happen simply on Sunday mornings from 1030 to noon. This doesn't happen through programs and schedules. This happens in relationships. It happens in homes and neighborhoods and in communities. And we ought to be pursuing this love in order to give a credible and visible display to the Gospel and how it's transformed our lives. I think the Word challenges us. I think we ought to examine the quality of love that we have for one another. In fact, our love for one another is the actual evidence that He's begun this work of salvation in us. The Apostle John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God, God must also love his brother. And so the test, I think, of God's work in your life is not if you read the Bible or give to the offering or attend our worship service. The test is if you generally and truly love people in this community, people in this church. I think we all have room to grow here. I think this is perhaps a weakness in Hamilton Baptist Church, as I express it to you. We need to grow I don't know if there are some here this morning that that struggle to love other people in this church. Maybe there are some here that are quickly offended and annoyed. Maybe there are some here who think, well, she ignored me or slighted me or his kids are too restless or this person dresses the wrong way or he sings too loudly or off key. I would just challenge you if other people's faults loom large in your mind... You have lost sight of what God wants to do here. You have lost sight of what God has done for you and what he plans to do in his church. Paul says, I love all of you. It doesn't matter who it is. In fact, he tells us why a little bit in verse 7. He says that, that they are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, they've been with Paul through thick and thin. They, they've they helped him in his imprisonment as we've already explored and even they are being persecuted and perhaps imprisoned themselves and so they are walking side by side with Paul and he says, you've also not only supported me or or joined with me in my imprisonment but you've also done so in the defense and confirmation of the gospel that Paul's there in Rome but the Philippians there are defending the gospel in Philippi and they are proclaiming the gospel in Philippi as you will see in chapter 1 in verse 27 when we explore that passage in the coming weeks that, that they are there and they are helping Paul and, and they, Paul sees them standing firm for the gospel and he says this is evidence according to verse 7 that you are partakers with me of grace that they too have received grace they desire to spread the gospel and support Paul and be, are strong in the face of opposition and it's all evidence that they have grace and and this evidence that they have grace fills Paul with joy because he loves them so much and he wants them to have grace it, reminds me of what John said as an older man saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And this is, this is what Paul feels. I have joy knowing that you have received grace and I see grace throughout your life. And I love you and I find my joy in you. This prisoner filled with joy because they, like Paul, have received grace. And so let me tell you, do you want joy? you want joy? Do not cut yourself off from God's people. God has drawn you to a people in order to find joy in those relationships. And some of you just punch a clock on Sunday morning. You're in and you're out and you don't have any meaningful relationships and you're not supporting the ministry of this church in any meaningful way. And, and I, I just, I'm telling you, you are cutting yourself off from joy. Joy that is found in that that love. Some of you have have issues in your heart and you need to talk to someone else, someone in this church to seek help. You'll find joy in that. You fear that, but it's not for you to fear, it's for someone else to come alongside you and love you through those troubles. This is why God has given us one another. In fact, it's all this 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 all this joy, I don't know if you notice, is all, all from grace. Right? They're partnering in the gospel work. Well, why are they doing that? Because of the grace of God brought him to that point. And God's going to complete what He started in them. And, and why is He going to do that? Because of the grace of God. And, and, and they love Paul. And Paul loves them. And they are all working and, and have received grace. And it's all about grace. You see, grace is transforming their life and filling them with joy. And, and perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian. I, I want, to, as we end our time this morning, I just want you to understand that, that we as Christians have joy not because it comes natural to us but because we have grace we don't in fact we don't sacrifice let's be honest we don't sacrifice give our money and serve for gospel work because we are naturally servant-hearted we've been changed in fact we don't base our confidence in God's faithfulness to complete the work in us because it's easy to turn away from our own confidence in ourselves towards another? No, we do so because God has changed us. In fact, we love each other, not because we are naturally loving people. We've received grace. And it's changed us. It's transforming us. And that we might find joy in the grace in which God is bringing through this church. I pray you give yourself to the church and trust in the Lord. We have been changed by Jesus. Let us give Him thanks. Father, we thank You for our Savior who has come and done a good and mighty work in us, who has changed us and transformed us and given us grace. And we rejoice in the grace in which we have received. And I pray that that would continue to do its work in our lives in this church, that we might find joy in the places where You point for us to look. And we would find joy, Father, in all these things that we have considered. Help us to be people of joy. And I trust and I hope as we work our way through this epistle of joy verse by verse that you over the coming months will do a a good and mighty work in Hamilton Baptist Church. We we love you and we want our hearts to be reoriented away from the places which this world says you are to find joy towards true and abiding reality. So help us. Bind us together as a church. I pray for my friend here this morning, who is not a Christian. I pray that you would help them understand that their eternal salvation before their Maker does not depend if they are if they're a good person or a bad person. Maybe there's someone here, Father, who says, "When I go to, will go to heaven because I'm good, or my good deeds obey my bad deeds, or I'm better than so and so." And I pray that you would tell them, even in their heart right now, that they are not good. None of us are good. There is only one good. His name is Jesus. And that you convict them that Jesus died on the cross for them because they are sinners. And if they are to live forever, if they are to be transformed by you, they must confess their sin and surrender their life to Jesus. I pray that you would help them to do so even now, that they might find joy that they never knew existed. We pray in Christ's name.